Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Digital Noir Presents podcast, live from South Start. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Whoa, that's loud. How's South Start been for you so far? Good, good. Looks like a good event, um, good participation. It's always good to educate entrepreneurs. Mm. Have you been uh, Have you been to a couple of the dinners? Have been involved with no, a... No, I've just been too busy, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested to chat to you about, I suppose, Adelaide and South Australia. Sure. So one of, the, one of the key things that we're talking about here at yep. South Start is, I suppose, trying to you know, foster, um, you know, these kind of conversations and this, and this passion for, for business and yep. creativity and, and innovation here in SA. Um, I suppose it's interesting you having come from overseas and then, and then settling yep. down here in Adelaide. Why Adelaide? I'm purely uh, lifestyle, uh, not even lifestyle reasons. We just fell in love with the city. So we, my mm. wife and I visited Australia in the year 2000, spent five weeks in the country, drove from Brisbane to Adelaide, spent uh, time at every spot along the way. And when we got to Adelaide, we fell in love with it. We didn't have any friends or family in Australia, didn't know anyone here. Didn't know, I couldn't even tell you the population of the country or major <laughs> industries. But what I could tell you in, in terms of um, when I was on the airplane going home with my wife is that it left such a big impression on us that we said we want to come back and live here and when was that so we came back in 2004 so we visited end of like i think it was december 2000 okay. and then i uh, was running a business in the u.s and we ended up being sold packed our bags packed our dog and uh, arrived here that's exciting i've had chats with a few people that have done that they've traveled around oz and then end up in adelaide and, and fell in love with it yeah well was is it is it the um you know the, the size of the city is the, the laid-back of it that's kind of got you or was it I think when you try to break it down to specific variables you know is it the size is it its geography is it because the streets are you know um, uh, done in a square I think that becomes a logical kind of argument you mm. try to point for, for me it was a feeling emotional uh, yeah so the feeling that we had in Adelaide whether it was being in the Barossa or in the hills or on the beach or a coffee or having a lunch in a restaurant um, engaging with people that were much more laid back and seemed to us to have very good values for okay. Okay. Is what, what we had come from in the United States, where it was all business, all money, American dream. We, it made us feel good, and we wanted to be part of that community. So it wasn't any one concrete thing. It was the feeling that it gave us. Yeah, nice. What are some of the differences that you notice then coming from doing business in the U.S. and then, and then doing business here in, in Adelaide or in, in I Australia? Think I think there's lots of differences. Uh, my experience of the U.S., and I, almost, I lived there for almost 20 years, mm. is that it's very cutthroat. Cutthroat not in a, in a negative, you know, unethical kind of way. Cutthroat in that people are generally very good. Uh, and it's, it's, there's more money available. People are better salespeople. Yeah. There's no safety nets. Uh, so if, you, if you're an entrepreneur, no one's going to bank you if you can't sell you can't eat yep. and you die so it <laughs> creates this environment where the the minimum level of competence around salesmanship around marketing is just higher than okay. you would find in other countries there's also access to more money and there's access to more customers sure and uh, and, and i think and i think americans are just more um risk uh, tolerant okay than, uh, than, than Australian. So it's, so it's a different dynamic in, in, in all respects. But that said, I find Australia to be, you know, 100 times uh, better as a place to live and, and uh, raise a family and, and so on. We talked a lot yesterday about sort of the risk averseness of investment in particular in Australia, yep. but also um, entrepreneurs as well. And there, and there is this fear of failure in Australia and, and the fear of being perceived as, as, as a failure. Sure, sure. Um, yep. Whereas in the States, it's kind of not championed, but it's, it's, you know, it's embraced more, I think. Yeah, it's, it's tolerated more. And um, I think that you have the view that it's hard to succeed 
uh, in mass without failure being part of that process. So you, sure, you could have one person that has had multiple successes and never failed, but that's an outlier. And, yeah, so. and when you have 100 or 1,000 people put together, you're always going to have failure as a, as a part of that hope of these people going through. So I think uh, in America, they're just more cognizant of that fact mm. uh, versus uh, in, in Australia, that perhaps isn't the view. We were talking yesterday a lot about uh, education as well and, and how, do we, how do we teach young people, even maybe before university level, about sort of entrepreneurship but also you know, that cycle of, of, of failure and actually trying something and, and sticking yep. your neck out. Because at the moment, I think, especially in, in tertiary education, you know, it's all about, again, not failing, right? Yep. You're not sort of given projects and say, let's break something. Yep. Yeah, I, look, I think uh, anything you can do to instill those kind of values, thoughts, beliefs in uh, kids... Uh, will help them in whatever they do for the rest of their life. The worst thing that you could do is instill a sense in a child, uh, don't try it unless you're 100% sure. You're not going to break anything. It's going to work. That that kind of child's not going to try anything in their life. They're going to be a closet kind of person where they're afraid to try new things, even hobbies, because of Mm. the fear of failure and so on. So I think that's a good discipline in general to, to have and instill. Do, do you have kids yourself? Yes, yeah, two. So we, oh, nice. we came here and uh, the goal was uh, get a house on the beach and have kids. And that was as far as the plan went. And, and, and we ticked off both of those early on. Um, how old are they now? Uh, 14 and 12. Okay, nice. So, I mean, and, and so they've been brought up, you know, in this, in this generation of, uh, of smartphones. Yep. And, um, and how do you tackle that? Because that was something we talked about yesterday as well. Yeah, I, um, there's a couple of things. One, it's hard to take a new generation mm. and impose old generation mm. values. So when I was a kid, I had a bicycle and a stick and I played outside with my friends. So therefore, that's what you should do growing up. I don't think that's going to be a great way to build a relationship with a child, um, influence them in the future. So you have to kind of uh, operate in the new paradigm sure. as, as, ex- as it exists. And the second thing is, uh, I believe that I'm not here to tell my kids what to do, like be a doctor, uh, you know, get off your phone, read a book, a directive. I'm here to really expose them to new things with mm. the hope that some of these new things they latch onto. So in building Complexica, that's four and a half years old, they've got their own office inside our office. They get all the reports. They come to staff meetings. Yeah, I cool. educate them on the structure, capital structure of the company, stock options, customer contracts, what bank accounts look like and flow of money and all of that kind of stuff. We travel a lot. So my philosophy as a parent is educate by showing, yeah. educate by building awareness, not through directives. I think travel is great for kids to, yeah. to go and see different cultures. Absolutely. And, and that really does get you out of your yeah. sort of... We spent a month box. in Italy uh, this year and oh, the nice. kids picked this up. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, speeding and so on. So uh, yeah, that's, they, they see how different people live mm. and how they have different values and uh, look towards the same kind of... Uh, this is probably the most valuable thing. They look at the same situation, but they see it differently. Yeah, and depending s- on which culture you come from. Different lens to look through. Different right? lens. Whereabouts right. in Italy were you? Uh, we drove all the way from Rome up through Marinello, Modena oh, to Venice, uh, um, Verona, uh, Milan, and then up into Switzerland. So they really, you know, yeah, yeah, immersed themselves in the culture. They got to experience the, the Italian roads. They did. Yeah, <laughs> we, we visited uh, the inside of the Ferrari factory and oh, Lamborghini cool. factory. Wow. Saw a Lamborghini being hand built wow. uh, in, in front of us. So things like that, I think, stay with you. Where you, you know, you see a Lamborghini, you read it in the picture, versus you were in the factory and they built it in front of you. Mm. So you know, try try to or or the Vatican or Colosseum. Yeah. Uh, we watched the Gladiator, and then the next day we went out into the Colosseum, and and, and so, so you try to connect the phenomena that people. Uh, um, might read about or, or see in movies with the actual place 
situation, historical context, etc. And like you said about coming to Adelaide, that emotional connection, you, you can do so much research, but actually going somewhere and you know standing in the Coliseum oh, it's, is, is it's a no substitute. Not it's at all. Absolutely no substitute. So you've got a long history working in AI. Tell us a bit about Complexica and what, and what you're doing at the moment. Sure, sure. So I grew up in AI because my father's been an AI scientist since the very early 80s. So my, kind of my first memory of life is being in a university setting um, and uh, playing video games because I wasn't obviously interested in AI when I was six <laughs> years old. But it kind of uh, um, imprints itself on your psyche and brain because it's the only conversation in the house. Yeah. So this, the people that came over with other, were other professors or PhD students. Uh, when we traveled, we went to AI conferences because my father spoke and they would pay his travel expenses. Wow. Uh, and after school, I had to go to the uni and wait for my father to finish. And all the conversations were neural networks, machine learning, Turing test, and so wow. on. So I think um, having been in it for a very long time and running AI companies for 20 years now, I think this uh, uh, growing disconnect between the public's perception of what AI is and mm. what it can do and what it really is and what it can really do and uh, and the second is that ai has uh, some really good applications for narrow problems in sales and marketing supply chain problems logistics pro okay. can really generate a lot of value and that's that's what complexity does we optimize decision making uh, in companies because we believe that good decisions create value they create improvements in profit and so on and ai helps these companies make better decisions that disconnect, and we talked about that again yesterday. I mean, could you summarize that? Is it, it, what? Yeah, it's, I can give you an analogy. Mm. Um, people are aware of the statement that when a taxi driver starts giving you stock tips, it's probably the peak of the market you should sell rather than buy. <laughs> and I think the analogy to that is when taxi drivers begin talking about artificial intelligence and how it's going to destroy humanity, <laughs> then it's probably the top of the hype curve uh, as yeah. well. So uh, the, the disconnect is another hype bubble which has been, uh, we've cycled through before. This is probably the third time. There was another big one in the 80s. Before that, there was in the 60s. In the 80s, scientists came out and said, we will replicate the brain and its entirety mm. in a computing platform based on neural networks uh, you know kind of like the dream of AI and they tried to do that they spent hundreds of millions of dollars in Japan and other places it was a total disaster sure. like you couldn't salvage anything from these projects and then it went into what's called the AI nuclear winter where it was you know <laughs> laughed at and, yep. uh, and so on and now you're back on the hype curve again where it's gonna it's gonna you know um, destroy every job and it's going to become self-aware and it's going to be this and then you go into actual research settings mm. like or, or even in uh, um, biological research like neuroscience and you, sh and you say show me the research that even gives you uh, hope that this is kind of right around the corner so i think that people are and and, and i know why this happens the media sells articles that are sensationalized yep. you're not going to read an article that says ai is still 50 years away mm. but you will read one it says it's going to destroy all the jobs tomorrow and i don't think you, you read it about um the like practical applications for it too you know and, and obviously health is a big one but even uh like in, in infrastructure or um we we're talking yesterday about bushfire prevention or, you know things like this you know predict predictions um there's so many applications absolutely that, absolutely. that aren't if, job stealing you know the, the, the one that i love to point out is uh every person that's ever used the credit card mm. has been using AI because the classifier that's used underneath visas or American Expresses has been based on neural networks since the 80s. Right? Okay. No, one's, no one ever thought anything of it. It was never a big deal. No one said AI is going to, it's in my credit card. Now it's going to be in my home. And it's, it's gonna. So AI has already been used very successfully in a lot of applications for many, many decades. The field is, by the way, 70 years old, wow. seven, seven, seven zero. Mm. It's just now that it's become a, a Hollywood um, term. And sure. 
and you, and you see that curve sort of dying down again in terms of the yeah not not going into a nuclear winter because uh, technology speed of computing sophistication of algorithms availability of data sets training data sets all of that has risen substantially and the algorithms are a lot better than they used to be but there will be a reset of expectations a recalibration yeah, sure. of reality versus uh, um, what you know hope. So, so what does the next sort of you know couple of decades look like for you then, compared to sort of the, the science fiction or the, what the media is putting out there? I, I, d- depending on which field of AI you're in, robotics, mm. uh, natural language processing, uh, computer vision, or, or cognitive computing, there's different applications, and you'd be sure. focusing on different things. Yep. For example, so our entire um, business, which is a software business, is deploying applications that replicate uh, brain processes around decision making, reason pattern recognition, inference, deduction. And those are important processes because they're used by business people to make decisions. And the world has become dynamic, it's become complex, and making good decisions is harder than ever. So how does that look for us? Uh, More businesses want those kind of applications because they they no longer even view it as a competitive advantage. They just view it as something they need to just stay competitive, etc. So we see, um, and and actually it's happening in our company, branching off into more and more business function areas because decision-making is so prevalent everywhere. Finance, sales, marketing, supply chain, uh, even HR. You know, those, those kind of things. So decisions, good decisions. HR is a big one. Yeah, yeah. all of them. Mm. Good decisions make a business. Bad decisions destroy a business. So now you've got to ask yourself, how do I make good decisions in my business? And can I do it with pen and paper calculators and spreadsheets? Or is there a new computer? that can help, yeah. Yeah, and this is, and this is the, what the world has woken up to. But there's a big difference between a program helping you make a better decision and a program being self-aware, conscious, thinking, <laughs> reasoning. And that's, yeah, that's the difference between reality and science fiction. Cool. So you're working with companies globally? Yes. Yeah. So most of our customers are very large businesses. Uh, sure. Typical customers, more than a billion in revenue. It'd be like the Pfizer, okay. Dulux Groups, and Medcashes of the world. Yep. Uh, for two reasons. One, they're the ones that can invest heavily in the technology. But more importantly, they're the ones that have scale and complexity. Yeah. And AI is, is very well suited for scale and complexity. So if you have a small, simple business, there's no, there's no business case mm. to use a sophisticated technology. It's probably s- simple things that you can do. Or that data set to sort of warrant it. Correct, correct. What, what are some of the challenges of doing business in SA on that, on that global level? I, I've, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I get asked that a lot, and I've never actually had any challenges, even nice. though when I first came here and met entrepreneurs 15 years ago, they said I'd never succeed here. A lot they, of people they, have said that. A lot yeah. of people have said the same thing. Yeah, mm. they, they, and they, especially after they heard my accent. They said, <laughs> oh, before you opened your mouth, I thought you wouldn't succeed, but after you opened your mouth, I'm, I'm 100% certain <laughs> now. With that accent, for, forget about it. And I think there's, uh, in entrepreneurship, like in many things in life, what you believe kind of becomes your, your uh, um, system for action or what you act on. So if you fundamentally believe that you cannot succeed in South Australia, mm. that is like really an ingrained belief you have, what are you going to do? Nothing. Sure. Right? You would never go against the belief that you hold. So I always tell people that what you believe is more important than what is real. It doesn't matter if in reality doing business in South Australia is difficult or hard. That's irrelevant. What's mm. relevant is what you believe it to be. So uh, I haven't had challenges in doing business anywhere because I don't believe that any challenges really exist. There's nothing unique about South Australia or Australia that would prohibit me from being successful. And hence, 
you know, we, we won the big companies in Australia. Like in my last AI company in, mm. in Australia, we had BHP, we had Rio Tinto, Vizi Industries, sure. uh, Foster's Group, the who's who, the yep. blue chip, right? And no one, and, and, and it wasn't any harder than any place else. Still hard, but it wasn't any harder. And I, and I, but I meet so many people that tell you can't do it from South Australia. Mm. Oh, well, of course you're not going to do it if you, if you believe like <laughs> But it. I think that goes back to that kind of risk averse and, and, and feeling like other things need to happen. Whereas I think a lot of the people that we've been speaking to in the last two days, they just make it happen. Correct. And, and if, it's, if, the, if, the, if the resources or the infrastructure isn't here, then, then build it or bring them in. Yeah, there, there's a, a, gosh, I can't remember, I can't place the book. I read about a book a week, but um, it had a three... Uh, bullet points and it said people fit into one of three categories one there are people that make it happen there are there are the second category was people that let it happen yeah and the third category was people that let it happen to them or you know <laughs> <laughs> and and you're right you so you've got to have this attitude and belief that um i can do it yep. you've got to have a level of confidence and so forth and i will make it happen then you educate yourself what are, how did other entrepreneurs do it i'm not the first entrepreneur That's in right. south australia to succeed mm. surely so what did the other people do what was the common denominator of their success and that kind of gets you on the journey stepping towards making something happen but if your first step is it can't be done then there's no second step beyond that it becomes this limiting 100 percent yeah I, th I think that's a nice place to finish. And I think that, you know, some of the ideas around South Star is to have those conversations so younger entrepreneurs can yep. actually hear from people like yourself and go, well, you know, I, I can make this happen. I can be one of those people that, that's a doer rather than letting it happen to them. Correct, correct. It, 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 there's nothing more tragic than having a dream and for some stupid, superficial reason or belief, not acting on it and then getting 40 years on or 20 years on mm. and saying, God, if only I could, could have had that opportunity and or gone back, etc. So my father used to always say growing up, better to regret the things you did than the things you didn't do. Because once you do something and it fails, yep. you know. <laughs> and that regret is very finite and mm. defined. But the thing that you never did, that's undefined. That could have been anything. You could have been a billion-dollar company. You could have been the greatest act. And that, that regret mm. is so much greater than the regrets of things that you did. So give it a go. That's the, that's the message. Beautiful. Thanks so much for having a chat. Pleasure. Really appreciate it.